Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex, I am an MD pursuing a PhD in computer science at Oxford, an MBA at Harvard Business School, and a master's in bioengineering at Stanford. And I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Mansoor Shamali. He's the chief medical officer at WellDoc, a healthcare technology company that develops solutions to transform the management of chronic diseases like diabetes. Mansoor received his undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering at the Johns Hopkins University and his medical degree from McGill University in Canada. Mansoor, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Very happy to be with you both. Awesome, and we're super excited about the conversation. So Mansoor, to put things into perspective for our listeners, can you give us a summary of your early life story and how and why you decided to go to medical school? And then perhaps, why did you decide to trod off the beaten path? Thanks, uh, Alex, for taking me back to my childhood. Well, I have to say, no one studied medicine in my family. Um, My father, I think, wished he could be a doctor because he loved biology and he loved helping people, um, but he didn't have that opportunity. And um, I'm kind of... uh, the typical sort of first-generation immigrant where we're always trying to sort of achieve something. And uh, so so I think I had that, you know, instilled in me that mindset of, hey, you know, do well in school, pursue your ambitions. Um, And I also loved biology and the concept of human biology, human health, um, and uh, sort uh, sort of started from there. So I did a little bit of um, a twist on the traditional pre-medical pathway. I studied biomedical engineering at Johns Hopkins. It was a new program at the time. Now it's really uh, popular to study engineering before going to med school. But in those days, it was very novel to mix medicine with engineering. And uh, it really got me interested in problem solving, technology, um, you know, mathematics. Um, And so I entered medical school with that background and I had a bit of a different mindset than those of my colleagues who studied biology and chemistry. Um, so I was always intrigued with technology and problem solving. And I think that influenced my later career path. Thank you, Mansoor. And I, I want to reflect on a point that you've mentioned that you uh, come from an immigrant background and that you've had this drive to achieve something. And I think uh, one of the uh, concepts and points that we, we discuss on the podcast is the immigrant mentality and how kind of having that background or just generally having some adversity in one's background can be a massive uh, force uh, for good and a massive motivation. So certainly appreciate your point on that. I think I want to drive perhaps the conversation a little bit towards your highly impactful work on diabetes and growing diseases. And I think if we look at diabetes, we have 422 million people worldwide with diabetes. A large proportion of this number is in low-middle-income countries And I think some of the statistics point to 1.5 million deaths uh, attributed to diabetes every year. The healthcare impact is really massive. However, the exciting thing, I think, is all the innovation that's happening in the space. And so my my dad has uh, type 2 diabetes. And I think one of the biggest transformative innovations for him was uh, the Abbott Freestyle Libre 
the blood glucose monitor because it really enabled him to monitor his blood glucose level all the day. So I'm really excited about this innovations, but Mansoor, you're the expert in the space, so would love to kind of uh, know your thoughts on what are the most exciting innovations that uh, you're interested in within the space of diabetes and that you think would have a significant impact on the management of the disease. Well, Alex, chronic medical conditions are unique. Um, First of all, med school is a terrible place to learn about chronic medical conditions. The curriculum generally uh, is emphasizing acute care, right? We're working in the hospital, we're working in the emergency department, we treat infections, we treat heart attacks, strokes, um, septic shock. Um, So so I feel like um, this whole idea of chronic disease management is something that I had to learn on the job. It's not something that I really learned in medical school. I have to say, being involved in medical school curriculum, um, they're making progress because they're creating educational settings where students can actually see patients longitudinally. It's really difficult, but uh, I think they're trying hard. And so chronic diseases are very different than acute illnesses, right? And the mindset of the, the physician and the mindset of the patient the person with the illness have to be very different in order for success to occur. And the reason for that is number one, you can't fix a chronic disease. It, it, you have to learn how to live with it. And learning how to live with it means making decisions in real time in the moment. What am I gonna eat today? Am I gonna go for a walk or am I gonna sit down and watch television after dinner? Um, what if I'm going to dose my insulin? Do I take more? Do I take less based on what I'm eating, based on my activity, based on my how high my blood glucose is? And, and then technology like your father's technology allows him to know what his glucose levels are any time of the day with almost no effort, right? And so um, we have to t- take care of our patients with chronic conditions differently than acute conditions. And, and that's sort of where I've sort of made my impression, I think, because because that's not something we learn in medical school and residency where acute care is emphasized more than anything. Thank you, Mansoor. And I think really these technologies are are so important. And for example, my dad is still in Syria and the uh, Freestyle Libra is not officially available there, but we rely on my uncle who travels back and forth to every month bring a couple of these devices uh, to him. So certainly the impact on lives of the patient is so extensive. I want to reflect on the point that you've mentioned that the medical curriculum emphasizes acute care rather than managing chronic care. And I think I've never thought about it that way. So thank you for sharing the insight. I think with a couple of guests, we discussed how to change the medical curriculum. We discussed ideas of thinking of the medical degree as more of a platform. So Uh, more similar to how we think about an MBA, where you get a basic level of skills in business and finance, and you can apply it to different verticals, or how you think about PharmD degrees, where you also get a basic level of understanding, and you can go in multiple directions rather than in only one direction. So would love to know your thoughts on how can the medical curriculum and medical education perhaps change to help us as physicians and medical students learn more how to manage complex cases, complex chronic disease patients? Good question, Alex. Um, I've thought a lot about this because 
a lot of medical school is acquiring factual knowledge. And not as much of medical school is about learning the skills of problem solving. And in, if you're going to, in your MDA program, if you, if you want to actually be a big wig consultant someday um, with a consulting firm, it's all about problem solving. It's not necessarily about memorizing lots of facts. So I think that the first two years of medical school are mostly acquiring factual knowledge and less about problem solving. Now, once you enter the second two years of med school and maybe residency, um, you're thrown in to solve problems, right, into a room. So so it's fascinating. As, as an educator, sometimes I see that the students who got the highest USMLE scores made the worst residents and the worst doctors because they were good at answering multiple choice questions on facts. But when you put them in a room with a patient who, did, who wasn't a multiple choice question, um, that was a different, that required a different skill set. So I think that medical schools need to do more integration of problem solving from day one um, and, and kind of do it the same way graduate schools work. Let's make, let's teach skills. Let's not teach facts. Um, as much. Um, and now, especially with easy access to knowledge from your cell phone, from your browser, you know, I don't need to memorize as much as I used to, but I need to know how to use the data to help my patient. And I think that's where the gap is. H- how do you take facts and use them for your, to make your patients better? That's the element that we need to improve upon in medical education. Thank you, Mansoor. This is very insightful. And I think it goes back to a uh... An idea we discussed with one of our uh, previous guests around decentralization of education and the fact that you don't necessarily need to go through a very rigid, rigidly designed educational curriculum, but you can kind of make it more skills based and you'd have certification at the end, meaning that to be certified that you're you're kind of qualified in a particular field like medicine, you'd have to pass like multiple tests and et cetera. But the skill acquisition process is more decentralized and focused on particular tasks. This is super interesting. I guess maybe I want to shift the conversation a little bit to health AI and, and, and machine learning in healthcare. M- Mansoor, you've been a leader in this space with your current work and previous work and would love to know how you think about how can we leverage the the power of machine learning and AI in um, managing chronic diseases and generally endocrinology? AI has been a really a buzzword for like so many companies and and so many uh, publications, but I think we're getting there in terms of true efficacy and and true impact on patients. But it's a much more prolonged journey that than people uh, think of because. I think one of the really important factors to leverage AI is to understand how we can integrate it into the workflow so that it gives outputs and recommendations that are really meaningful to the physician and physicians would act on. So we'd love to know how you think about uh, the implementation of AI within your space. Well, I view two consumers of AI. There, there's, there's the patient consumer, and there's the healthcare professional consumer. And um, one of the reasons why it has to be both ways is that my patients can't be with me all the time. As I told you before, people aren't cured of diabetes. They have to live well with diabetes by doing the right things. 
So if I'm seeing a patient every three months, for most of the time, he or she is on his or her own, right? So we could actually capture the rules of behavior in the moment um, into a digital tool that patients can carry on their cell phone, and it can coach them 24-7 when they're not with me, right? And so... Um, and the reason is patients now, like your dad, have access to data that's very rich. If you have a glucose value every minute um, and you do the math, you're talking about tens of thousands of glucose values a week. And the average human brain doesn't know what to do with all that data. So what I feel like AI is strong, the computer is way better at certain things than the human brain on the patient side of things. And so you can build so many rules into the computer so that um, it processes the data, uh, crunches it, and presents it in the way that a patient can consume it and understand it and take that data point or take that piece of knowledge and turn it into an action. And that causes a change in behavior. So, so the data isn't just data. It becomes informative and becomes actionable. That's what AI can help us with. Whereas if you just give the data to the patient, they don't always know what to do. On the other side, on the provider side, that's really also the case. Um, AI cannot replace what the provider does. There are things the human brain at this point of time does way better than a machine. We can elicit trust from our patients. We have empathy. Um, we can actually evaluate different options and customize them to our patient's lifestyle, right? Whereas the computer is really good at crunching numbers and following algorithms and summarizing data and summarizing clinical guidelines into ways that can give decision support to the providers. So what I'm calling for is not for AI to replace the, what a physician does, but rather let the computer do what it does best, let the human do what he or she does best. And I think though that line we have to figure it out and it may change over time as the AI gets smarter and as humans become more complicated. But um, that's kind of the way that I view the relationship between AI and information and algorithms and, and human medicine. I mean, my patients, when they come to me, they can't tell you how smart I am. They can only tell you how empathetic I am, how um, much time I spend with them, how kind I am with them. Those are the human qualities that my patients want from me. And, um, but at the same time, if I didn't have their data and know what to do with it, how good of a doctor would I really be? So, so I think the, the data can really support the decision-making, but the clinician's greatest strength is that connection he or she makes with a patient. And computers aren't there yet. So, so that's kind of the way we need to work with technology. The problem with how we've implemented technology in the last decade with the electronic health record is that we've made the physicians work differently to support the EMR or the EHR, rather than having the technology support the clinician. And that's really turned a lot of my colleagues in medicine off from technology. And that's slowed down progress with AI and decision support because we, you know, the, 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 the electronic health record system 
didn't work with the way we wanted our workflow to work. It, we had to change the way we did things to, to do the med reconciliation, um, to e- type in the HPI, to type in the prescriptions, all of those things. We had to change our workflow to support the EMR. And um, definitely there has to be an element of that. The, the way to, to work in a technology um, situation is not the old school way where we had charts and pens and papers and stuff like that. Um, But a certain element of our distrust of technology was how my generation was forced to use an EMR system that we didn't like to use. So in medical school, you're starting off with it now. So so the EMR is not um, the enemy anymore, right? It's just part of the course. So the med students and the younger physicians, it's just a matter of that's how things work, right? You use the computer. So I feel like that generation of doctor is going to be more receptive of technology than my generation. I certainly agree, agree with that, Mansoor. And I think from we've spoken to a lot of folks in the space and everyone says that as the generational shift happens and across healthcare providers, we'll see much more adoption of uh, tech because the younger generation is more digitally native. And I, I see there is some sort of friction that happens always when you add technologies to workflow of physicians. And we really, to reach the potential of tech, we really need to minimize that friction as much as possible. I think to the point of AI, I wanted to add something there that, just building on your point on how uh, humans interact with machines, uh, we used to always analyze the performance of AI based on retrospective data sets and how it performs as a correlator on its own. But if you implement it in the clinic, the correlator would be the human and the AI at the same time. So you would need to test their performance as a single correlator. Yeah. So Alex, imagine that famous experiment where IBM Watson had to play a a chess, the, the chess champion of the world. And the, the question is, who's going to win the match? Is it going to be IBM Watson or is it going to be, um, who was it, Kasparov? Yeah. And uh, that's the wrong question. The right question might be, what if you give IBM Watson as a teammate, as your teammate, not as your opponent, right? What can you achieve then? And, and I feel like you're, you've hit the nail on the head. It's not the machine versus the doctor. Right, and who can take care of the patient better? It's what can we achieve when you optimize the relationship between the technology and the human? Absolutely, and I think Mansoor, that's one of the things that I was listening to uh, to some media material about about that whole story with Kasparov, and I think that was one of the conclusions that he came to after his defeat, which is basically like if we can use machines and and AI to to assist the human decision making, we'll be able to achieve a performance that is way superior to anyone on its own. It's been a fantastic conversation from my side, Mansoor, and I'm going to hand over to Shad for a couple of questions from his side. Great. Thank you, Alex. And, and Mansoor, really have been enjoying your insights so far. Thank you again for joining us. I wanted to ask about something one of our previous guests in our podcast actually said, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. You know, in her book, An American Sickness, uh, she says this about the dysfunctional medical market in the United States, quote, With their market power, big providers can simply demand more. There is no such thing as a fixed price for a procedure or test, and the uninsured pay the highest prices of all. There are no standards for billing. 
there's money to be made in billing for anything and everything. Prices will rise to whatever the market will bear, end quote. When we interviewed Dr. Rosenthal last summer, she spoke with us about her frustration with the American healthcare system. And a lot of docs, not just her, are frustrated and how it's primarily focused on business rather than healthcare. But obviously, in a cohesive world, there needs to be some understanding of how those two domains can work together because healthcare isn't just about clinical medicine. It's also about entrepreneurship, innovation, bringing all these innovative tools to the market. At the center of all of it, and most important, are patients, but there's this whole ecosystem that actually matters. So in your opinion, what do you think are some of the problems or tensions that we have within the U.S. healthcare system? And and what can docs do, for example, to help solve these problems? Well, Shad, um, a few things come to mind. Um, first of all, um, this whole idea of chronic disease management that we started speaking about, I'm going to bring it to this conversation in, in just a little bit of a different way. Right now, um, I'm a diabetes specialist, right? So I see a patient with diabetes, and then I schedule a follow-up visit in three months. But in between visits are when bad things are happening. So my schedule doesn't specifically allow me to see patients when they're in trouble, which would I, I would call that episodic care. Um, so in three months, I have to see that patient again because I've scheduled to follow up in three months, whether they're, they've done well or whether they, they're having trouble. So how do we build a healthcare system that supports episodic care very efficiently. So I, I'd rather see the patients that, are, that need my help that where I'm going to sort of put them in the right direction because they're in trouble rather than just see patients at fixed intervals, which is the way specialty care is practiced in the United States. So in my practice, I've built in to my schedule emergency slots because I know that my patients decompensate in between visits. They call my secretary and say, I need to see him. And she looks at my schedule and says, sorry, you can't see him until six months from now. That's no good. That's no, not being a doctor. That's not being an effective healthcare professional. So every patient of mine gets to be able to see me if they're in trouble because of the way that I've rigged my schedule. And believe me, because, of, because I split my time between the work I do at WellDoc and the work I do with my patients, I don't have as many clinical hours as full-time clinicians do, but I try to make my schedule so that, because my patients don't know that, hey, I'm in a business meeting at this time. They just, they're sick. They need their doctor, right? So, so, so having the healthcare system respond to episodic care efficiently is a problem because we're sort of burdened with our administrative responsibilities and our schedules are, are full and they're packed. And, and, and um, imagine um, a two by two square where you've got like um, quality of care on one axis and um, how hard it is to deliver that care on the other axis. Um, and you wanna be in that square where healthcare delivery is easy and healthcare quality is maximized. That's the square to be in. Um, imagine the square where healthcare delivery is easy, but outcomes are not very good. That's kind of what I call the hamster wheel, right? We're just like running along, seeing our patients, whether they need to be seen or not, writing a note in the chart, generating a bill, charging the patient for the visit, right? So, 
So, and, and that's the, the problem with fee-for-service model, right? You're seeing the patient and you're charging for seeing the patient, whether they need to be seen or not, whether you do a good job for them or not. So, so those are some of the problems that I see in healthcare. Can we optimize that two by two square? Can we be in that corner where outcomes are great and physician burden is lowest? I think we can if we leverage technology appropriately. And that technology for scheduling, for um, monitoring. So, so imagine my patients have that, uh, let's say a patient of mine has a CGM device like your dad, Alex. Imagine that I have that there's an algorithm on the device that says, if this pattern is detected, you don't wait for your next routine appointment, you see the doctor sooner. And you rig that into the scheduling system, right? So those urgent spots are filled in. I feel like the technology is there. We just have to put the pieces together to build a better system. No, Munster, that, that, that's really helpful insight. And I think you're sort of laying out of your philosophy of how you think about patient care, that the whole patient-centeredness is, is incredibly important. It's something that we get taught nowadays in medical school, but I understand that it wasn't always the case where the focus was that drastically on patients, at least from what I've heard uh, from my older colleagues. I think the notion is you want to meet the patient according to their needs uh, and not have them meet you according to your needs. And sometimes that's not intuitive, especially when you're incredibly busy as a physician, you know, like you, you're doing like two different jobs, really, really, you know, stressful jobs. And you might be running two or three hours late in clinic and you go see a patient and and they might be upset, understandably, but you say, hey, like I was seeing another patient and it's not really the patient's job to quite understand that you've had a busy day. One of my clinical mentors would always say, Shad, no matter how bad of a day you're having in the hospital, keep in mind that the patient potentially could be having a worse day. Like for some of these people, they've just gotten a diagnosis of cancer or they've gotten a diagnosis of, you know, whatever disease it is. It could be one of the worst days of their lives. And so always think about how they're feeling rather than how stressed you are or how you're feeling in that particular scenario. So that, that, that we're professionals. Yeah, we're, we're professionals. The patient is most important, right? Um, and during COVID-19, we've been understaffed and very stressed as a healthcare system, patients still want care. And we're not able to sometimes give them the care as effectively as we'd like because our schedules are booked, um, our video visit slots are filled up. Uh, you know, So um, I, during the pandemic, a patient doesn't say to the doctor, oh doc, um, you know, um, um, I, it's okay if you don't see me on time because I know there's a pandemic and you, you've you lost staff because of COVID and this and that. They just need the care. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a tension that I think a lot of people are dealing with. And I spent the first six months of the pandemic uh, working in the hospital and spending a, a good bulk of it in an ICU taking care of COVID patients. And I know how challenging it was for the medical professionals then. And and I, I sort of came to business school after six months. And so kudos to all of the medical professionals who've stuck through the entire pandemic for what now, two, three years, uh, taking care of patients under unideal conditions. Real, really, really impactful work. Munster, um, just you know, shifting gears here a little bit to providing some advice to our audience members. You, you know, our audience is filled with pre-meds, medical students, residents, uh, young attendings who are interested about all of these different things, all these non-clinical interests that they have. As someone who's 
passionate about creating change in the healthcare world and and one who's who's had quite the experience in areas beyond clinical medicine Mansoor like what advice would you give our audience members as to how to think differently about their career trajectories and and how can MDs sort of reject the old stereotype of of an MD's career and sort of move past it and and broaden their conception of what impact and success actually means in the 21st century as a physician yeah um well, it's kind of humbling, this question, right? Um, but um, I actually have two children who are both in college and they both aspire to be physicians. And I'm really proud of that because what it means is that when I come home at the end of the day and they saw their dad coming home from work, that they saw someone who they could aspire to be like, which means that I love what I do, that I wake up every day with a strong passion for, for what I'm doing and, and I'm following that. So, and I feel like if I were just in a small village in the middle of nowhere with no technology, I'd love it. I'd love to, cause I love taking care of people. Right. Um, on the other hand, if I'm in the middle of a metropolitan area, university medical center, lots of computers and sensors and medical devices and equipment. Um, I love that too. So, so the, the idea is for the young people that are listening Follow your passion and whatever it is that you end up doing, um, do something that you really enjoy. Um, and, and don't worry too much about the specifics of what that is. It's not necessarily what specialty. See, when I was in med school, people would ask me something like, hey, what kind of doctor do you want to be? And I thought they meant, do you want to be a urologist or a gastroenterologist? No. Do you want to be an academician? Or do you want to go into practice? That, that was, those were two categories at the time. You could be a professor of medicine, teaching, doing research, uh, taking care of patients, being the so-called triple threat. Or you could just have your practice somewhere in an office and take care of people, right? But as you know now, uh, Shad, there's other options, right? So in my case, I, I serve as chief medical officer for a health tech company. And... Um, and, and you might think, well, gee, what does being a doctor have anything to do with being a CMO at a health tech company? Well, I can't do the things that I do at work um, if I didn't know how to take care of people who are sick. Because at the end of the day, our devices, our technology, um, our uh, pharmaceuticals, they need to help people who are sick get better. So um, the best way to make bad technology is to have people in charge who don't know what they're doing, right? Who don't really have any pragmatic experience in, in the clinical world. So, so, um, so my clinical hat and my clinical job inform my chief medical officer position um, very directly. And I know that my colleagues who go into industry, who stop practicing medicine, they lament that. And they tell me, you know, I wish I were still in the clinic because I'm quite honestly not as relevant as I used to be. I, I, I can't figure things out. I've lost touch with sort of uh, with the practice of medicine out there. And they need to rely on others who have clinical experience to sort of help guide the company's progress. There's a second, uh, a flip side to, to what I just said, which is when I'm seeing my patients, that chief medical officer voice inside of me, I sometimes hear, hear him too, because... I'm seeing my patient, taking care of my patient just as I would anybody else. 
But then the things that I've learned at the company apply sometimes one-on-one with a patient, which is problem solving, doing the right thing, listening, um, and being empathetic. We actually have a lot of similarities, the doctor part of me and the chief medical officer part of me. So, so what, what, what does that say to your listeners? It, it is whatever job you do, make it an authentic part of your life. Make every aspect of your life inform the other aspect of your life so that you're happy and you're um, excited to bring those skills to life, no matter whether it's a day at the office or a day in the clinic. Monsieur, incredible advice. And there's so much there, right? So let me just reflect on some of the things that you said. This transference of skills and knowledge between seemingly different domains is powerful because a lot of innovation and excitement happens in the intersection when people from a different domain who think about the same problem slightly differently come and meet minds with, let's say, clinicians or engineers, whatever it is. That's where some of the proverbial magic sort of happens. And I remember speaking with uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal, and she was an ER doc, and then she became a journalist uh, traveling around the world. Initially, I don't even think she covered health. She was covering a completely different segment. And she actually says that when people come to her, young journalists come to her and ask for advice, she sort of gives them advice anchored around what she had to do in the ER, right? Like, you go... And see patients provisionally because like, you know, all these patients are coming in and out of the OR. It's like controlled chaos. You have, you know, 10, 15 minutes to build rapport with them, get to know them, get their story and then triage them. And there's a lot of transferable skills there, no matter where you go and vice versa. You sort of talked about the your uh, CMO hat speaking to you when, you, when you're taking care of patients. So I, th- I think that transfer of skills goes both ways. The other thing I wanted to mention is that clinical medicine is, is of course, an incredibly noble profession. It, it's a profession where the depth of impact you're having on individual patients can be very, very profound, regardless of whether you're doing surgery or internal medicine or endocrinology or GI, whatever it is. The depth of impact is truly something that almost no other profession can itch that particular itch. But I think in general, it's a good thing. We certainly need a lot of doctors to practice clinical medicine, but I think in general, it's a good thing when docs are in positions in industry because you want, like you said, you want people who are patient-focused, who who have a line of sight to the patients making decisions at the corporate level or making decisions at payers or in venture capital companies because that patient-centeredness is something that I think we as clinicians take with us no matter where we go. Again, really, really resonate with some of the advice that uh, and some of the insights that you've shared with us today. Just finishing off here, Mansoor, just curious, how, how can our audience learn more about what you do and, and follow the impact that you've had? Some may want to you know, follow you on, on different media platforms or stay in touch or read your writings or listen to your podcast, whatever it is. How do they keep in touch? Oh, <laughs> I have followers, potentially. Um, uh, so, um, well, um, um, I think uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn. You can, uh, I will post from time to time, um, milestone accomplishments that we're making, um, at WellDoc. And, um, that's probably the best one at this point. Um, and, um, I do read my messages and I do respond to messages. So I'm happy to interact with your listeners. Um, but I kind of think that 
mentoring the next generation is so much fun. Um, it keeps me young. Um, seeing my own, so when I teach the medical students, I look at the auditorium and I, I, I used to see people that were just a little bit younger than myself. Now I see my children in the room and um, it just keeps us young. And, and especially your generation that's sort of grown up with the technology, right? So I have to like work really hard to get my colleagues in medicine to use technology. But you guys, it's like par for the course, you know? You you can't imagine that there isn't an app for every every problem, right? And um, so so that sort of enthusiasm for technology is really um, admirable because I feel like we're in a transition from sort of the old ways to the new ways of practicing medicine. And uh, I look forward to seeing how much you guys can achieve with IBM Watson as your partner, not your opponent. What a great way to end off, Mansoor. I, I'm in a leadership and happiness class right now. And yes, they do teach happiness at the Harvard Business School. And uh, one of the things that that we learn is sort of the importance of technology and, and how it can be used for good, but also can be used for all of the negative consequences that, you know, you and I are intimately sort of familiar with. And so I think the same thing, whether it's AI or just general use of technology, also applies uh, in the domain of healthcare. But this has been a fantastic, fantastic episode, one of my favorites, and I know I speak for Alex as well. So thank you again for joining us, Mansoor. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Shad. Thank you, Alex. Shad, this was a great conversation with Mansoor. I really enjoyed it. And I was just thinking about what would my takeaway be? And I think my takeaway for this conversation is the framework that Mansoor has mentioned on difficulty of healthcare delivery and quality of care. And I think he uh, described it as a two by two framework where we have low and high quality healthcare and low difficulty and high difficulty of healthcare delivery. And I think he mentioned that technology and healthcare innovations should move us into the quadrant of low difficulty and high quality. And I think we can get there, but it requires really thinking about the proper integration of technology within healthcare. Because again, Mansoor touched on the example of how electronic medical records were integrated improperly, and that introduced a lot of burdens on physicians, as I'm sure you've seen also like during your residency. But over to you. Yeah, I think that's a great takeaway, Alex. And uh, there are so many takeaways from this episode, but one thing that I thought was interesting was when Mansoor mentioned that medical school doesn't really teach us much about chronic uh, disease management, but more focuses on acute care management. And the generalizable point from that, which I think is insightful, is uh, medical school is not going to teach you every aspect of, it certainly doesn't teach you every aspect of healthcare, and, it's, and it won't even teach you every aspect of what it means to be a good physician or a good clinician. Certainly, that's why residency is there. But more deeply than that, I think you as an individual in medical school or pre-med, whatever it is, have to figure out what you want to get out of your career in medicine, clinical or otherwise, and then be very introspective about your time in medical school and figure out what skills are you learning, what knowledge are you hitting, and what exactly is missing, and be very active about going out and, and, and filling in those gaps, whether that means in the form of 
mentors or or, or supplementary education or just, you know, extra research projects that you need to do. So I think the generalizable point from what Mansoor said was that, you know, education in all of its forms and iterations is not going to be sort of handed to you, even if you're in a structured environment like a medical school. And there needs to be some active participation involved there to sort of hone in your your interests. So uh, I'll stop it there. Uh, this was a great episode, Alex. I would say join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media, uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. Take care.